Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. If you have your Bible, you might want to open it up and look. It says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul likens the church of Jesus Christ to one new man in verse 15. In quick review, Paul pictures the sinner dead in trespasses and sin. So the sinner was dead in sin in verse 1, influenced by Satan in verse 2, controlled by lust in verse 3, under God's judgment and wrath in verse 3, pagans without God in verse 11, separated from Christ in verse 12, Absent hope in this present world in verse 12. And then remember, but God did something remarkable in verses 4 through 6. He loved us in verse 4. He liberated us in verse 5. He lifted us up to heavenly places in verse 6. And why did God do all of this? So that God in Christ might display us as his love trophies, the recipients of grace throughout all of eternity in verse 7. We are the objects of his love. We are the subjects of his grace in verse 7. We are the products of grace in verse 10. We're partners with Israel in verses 14 through 18. We are the people of God in verse 19. We are the pillars in his temple in verses 20 through 22. Now remember, 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 we are one new man, Jew and Gentile, have been united together in Christ. Jesus repairs the broken relationships. Jesus heals the deep wounds brought about by sin and prejudice and then makes peace possible. For the people of God, we have a common access to God in Christ. We have shared citizenship in Christ. We're a single family in Christ. We're united in a single faith in Christ. So Paul's going to give three vivid illustrations concerning the church of Jesus Christ. The church is described in this passage as a holy nation at the beginning of verse 19. The church is described as the household of God at the end of verse 19. The church is described as the habitation of God, the place where God dwells. So we begin with the church as a holy nation. Look at the beginning of verse 19 again. It says, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints. In our Constitution, we have a clause that says the President of the United States must be a citizen 
born on the United States soil. Strangers and aliens were the words in the ancient world that described the people with few rights. When Paul is using the term, he means people who did not have access to God, who did not participate in the covenants of God. So when Paul is using the Greek word for strangers, it's the Greek word xenos. We get the word xenophobia from it. It means fear of, of strangers. So he uses the word xenos for strangers, and he uses the word parochios for foreigners. Now this is a word that describes someone a step below on the social scale and the suspicion scale of a stranger. So when he uses the term stranger and then foreigner, the, the person who's a stranger, the foreigner is, is strange, but even more than that. This, the, the foreigner is the person who never takes up residence. Think migrant. This is the person who never adopts citizenship. This is a drifter who would live on the edge of town and the edge of society. These were the people who paid a special alien tax for existing in a borrowed land, not their own. In the ancient world, people would live on the outskirts of the town. Now remember the book that you're reading. It's called the book of Ephesians. The reasons why it's called the book of Ephesians, it's written to the people of Ephesus. And Ephesus was a gigantic community. It was one of the four largest cities in the ancient world. Only Rome was larger. Only Alexandria was, was larger. I'm trying to think of the other third city that, that might have rivaled Ephesus. It, it might have been the third largest city in the ancient world. Think of a population that had 700,000 people. We're talking a, 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 an area that would have been as large as part of the downtown Denver and then go 10 miles in each direction. So these were the people who would live on the outside of, of the outskirts of the city. And so they were viewed with fear and suspicion. In our country, if people come to this country illegally, they're sometimes viewed with fear and suspicion. We also have political refugees in our country who were forced from their home because of genocide and terrorism in Syria, genocides in the past in Vietnam, Rwanda, Sudan, Somalia, Ethiopia. Just this, this week I was talking to a young man whose parents fled South Vietnam. They found themselves in California and then they made their way to Colorado. And he grew up in this country and a citizen but in Jesus, what Paul is saying is the spiritual stranger and the spiritual foreigner now become fellow citizens and saints. You have to understand part of the point that he's making. The Gentiles were viewed with fear and suspicion. You have to understand just how big of a deal it was. For the outsider to become the insider. For the people who were disconnected from the covenants to now participate in the covenants. And so that's the point. 
The saint means we are now the spiritual offer, or offspring and heritage of Abraham. So he says, now therefore you're no longer strangers and foreigners. You're fellow citizens. Note, with the saints. What does that mean? With all of the people in the past who were declared holy and righteous, set apart by God for God's plans and purposes. So Abraham... Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Elijah, Daniel, every faithful follower of God in every generation, you join them. You need to understand what Paul is saying. You have every right to identify yourself as not the, necessarily the physical seed of Abraham, although some of you might be. But you get to participate in all of the spiritual benefits enjoyed by every person who is a saint. And of course, no, we're no longer estranged from God. We are part of the communion of the saints. There are many things that can divide us in this age. Occupation, appearance, intelligence interests, political parties. There's lots of reasons why people stay apart from one another. But it was Spurgeon who said, sovereign grace can make strangers into sons. And that's the point that Paul is making. Grace has made you a part of the community. James Montgomery Boyce writes, quote, when Paul wrote those words, the kingdom of Rome was at the height of its territorial expansion and glory. Rome dominated the world. Roman armies kept peace and dispensed justice. Roman roads linked far-flung reaches of the empire. Rome had stood for hundreds of years and was thought to be able to stand for thousands of years more. But Paul looked at Rome and saw it. Not as one great united kingdom, but as a force imposed on mutually antagonistic factions. Rich and poor, free and slave, man and woman, Jew and Gentile. And in its place he saw the new humanity, created by God, transcending all those boundaries. The kingdom was destined to grow and permeate all nations, drawing from all peoples. It is a kingdom that cannot be shaken or destroyed, unquote. So Boyce captures the meaning of it. This is what it means to be citizens of God and citizens of heaven. Chuck Swindoll uses the illustration, quote, like a stained glass window, we come together with others to let Christ's light filter through us and shine to the world as we learn to more fully live out our citizenship. We realize that we are a part of a people who will endure forever. That is who you are, unquote. We sing a song, everlasting, your light will shine while all else fades, never ending, your glory goes beyond all things, and the light of our heart is to give you praise, everlasting, the Lord's light shines, he, it will never fade. And because of Jesus, we're at home in Christ. And in God, think about it. In Christ, you are not a second-class citizen. 
You are not an undocumented alien or an illegal person who stepped over the border of grace and snuck into the kingdom of God. You are there because of Jesus. You're there because of his grace. Christians from Romania and China and Tunisia and Egypt and dare I say India and Iraq and San Salvador and Colombia, the saints across the continents, the saints across the globe unite in a single body in Christ. I was reading this week about A.B. Simpson. He's a very famous Christian who... who, um, was instrumental in the Missionary and Alliance movement and uh, was deeply, deeply uh, influenced a guy named A.W. Tozier. But A.B. Simpson tells how he was lodging in a strange city and he was lonely. He used to walk the streets in the evening. And because he traveled a lot, he would walk down the streets and he would see families gathered around the kitchen table. He would see people enjoying each other's company or he would see the living room and he would see them gathered by the fireplace keeping warm and and when he would walk by, sometimes they would draw the curtain and he was reminded that he was left in the dark. And when I was thinking about that particular instance, I thought that that should never happen in the church. That should never happen in the body of Christ. You should never come into a church and think that you are an outsider. When in fact you're an insider. In Jesus, there's a place for everyone. We might be cultural Americans... But according to the Bible, we are members of a holy church. In the book of Acts, it's interesting to me, in chapter 8, we find a descendant of Ham. He is saved and born again. He's that guy that you know of as the Ethiopian treasurer. In Acts chapter 9, a descendant of Shem, Saul, the Benjamite, gets saved. In Acts chapter 10, a descendant of Japheth is saved. His name is Cornelius. They say that he was a Roman centurion, a member of what was called the Italian cohort. The first Gentile, if you will, saved. Now, isn't that interesting? Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, a picture of one of Noah's sons getting saved and then another of Noah's sons getting saved and another son being saved. Part of the point I think that's being made is that the family is back together again. The family that used to be separated now comes together. We see the church, holy, that means everyone is saints, universal and international, global, without any racial distinctions. And so we are holy. Now remember what that word means. It means set apart for the purposes of God. That's who you are. And then he says that the church is the household of God. At the end of the verse, look what it says, and members of the household of God. We are a holy family, a singular family at the end of the verse. What do we share in common? Remember what you've already learned. 
in the first chapter of Ephesians and the second chapter of, e of Ephesians. We have a singular access to the Father through his Son. We are God's family. Paul has made the sweeping statement that Gentiles, remember in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, were blessed, chosen, verse 4 of chapter 1, adopted, verse 5, redeemed by the blood, verses 7 and 8. We gather in his name and we give praise to God in verses 11 through 12. So he's reminding us of all of those things. And you might be put off, by the way, when a fellow Christian calls you brother or sister. Someone might come up to you and go, how are you doing, brother? How are you doing, sister? You may have grown up in a world where that was language only used by, in Spanish we say, carnal, people who are part of your flesh. You don't call people hermanos or hermana or primos. These are words that are restricted to people in your family. These familiar terms might make you feel awkward. You may feel that you can only use those special titles for those who share with you a common paternity or maternity or blood or your name. Paul is arguing we have a common paternity. God is our father. The church is our mother. Christ is our brother. We have a family in heaven and we have a family on earth. And so he invites you. To think that way and live that way and speak that way. With family comes benefits and privileges. When one of my children have a birthday, we all celebrate. When the grandchildren have a birthday, we all celebrate. And you might be thinking, so then why don't we act like a family? Well, in reality, we do, don't we? In your family, did you fight? Did you ever annoy each other? Did you ever experience disappointment? Was there ever a time in your family where there was a little more bitterness than there was affection? In your family, is it all love and no disappointment? In your family, there may have been hurting words and there may have been healing words. There was a woman who was giving her testimony in the church and she said, before I joined the church, I just hated my brother-in-law. I hated him so much that I wouldn't have gone to his funeral. Now that I'm a church member, I'm ready to go to his funeral any day now. <laughs> yeah, it is funny. When you put it that way, it's amazing to be a member of the household of faith in Christ. The believer is seen by God and treated by God, and this is the key, the way God would treat the Lord Jesus. Now, I want that to sink in for just a moment. How does God see you? He sees you the way he sees Jesus. How does God want to treat you? He wants to treat you the way he would treat his own dear son. I want you to pause for just a moment and reflect on that. How does the father feel about the son? Jesus says the father loves the son. 
How does the Father feel about you? He sees you and loves you. It's affection, comfort, guidance. In Romans 8.17, Paul makes this clear. He says, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. I'm going to repeat that verse in Romans 8.17. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. Jesus is faithful over his house. You belong to his house. Again, let it sink into you. So the church is holy. The church is a family. The church is a holy habitation. Look what it says in verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, Paul draws a spiritual blueprint like a master architect. Remember, we have a common access. We have a common citizenship. We're a common family. And when I say common access, common citizenship, common family, it means we have a shared access, shared family, shared citizenship. Paul illustrates the common faith by using the example of a temple building or a holy habitation in verse 21. Now, the church is a marvel of God's genius. And Paul is going to talk more about that in chapter 3. And we're going to talk more about it when we get to chapter 3. But Paul is going to use the illustration of a temple and then points out the specific features of a temple. Our foundation is the apostle and prophets. Paul is making reference to their teaching and our common faith. These are contained in the writings of the New Testament scriptures. And so when Paul talks about the prophets and the apostles, I'm going to suggest to you he probably means the divine revelation that was given in the Old Testament, confirmed in the New Testament, and then consisting of the writings of the New Testament. The forms of the foundation on which to build our lives is found in the Bible. And so he says the chief cornerstone which is the guiding stone for the whole building, is Jesus himself. The chief cornerstone is the cornerstone that lays out the size, the dimension, the function of the church. It was uh, one Bible teacher, he, he wrote, quote, in ancient building practices, the chief cornerstone was carefully placed. It was crucial because the entire building was lined up with it. The church's foundation, that is, the apostles and prophets, needed to be correctly aligned with Christ. All other believers are built on that foundation, measuring their lives with Christ. So the believer measures his or her life by what the New Testament says. The believer measures his or her life in Christ. So the chief cornerstone provides coherence, stability to the structure. So in Christ, the church has harmony, unity, a singular function. I should get some water here, but 
So what's the point? What's the point of Paul's illustration? Yeah, there's no water under here, but that's okay. Paul reminds us that the church, the church of Jesus Christ, sets its direction, forms its doctrine, and its practices based on the nature and character of Christ and the revelation given to the apostles and prophets. Think carefully. Because some of you have... Thank you so much, Jonathan. Years ago, my dad asked me, Hey, Gina, what's the true church? Is it the Catholic church? Is it the Protestant church? Is it this church? Is it that church? And I said, I said Dad, the church is a body made up of individuals who by faith have believed that Jesus Christ is their Lord and their Savior. And they've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit and they've been placed in a common communion. All things have to align with Jesus. We're supposed to fit together in Him. We fit tightly and rightly in a form and a function that glorifies God. That's the idea. So what does all of this mean? Our common access, our common citizenship, our common family, our common faith. Well, when Paul is writing about all of these things, we begin to see a vision of what the church is supposed to be like. What's the church supposed to be like? Well, here's what we learn. We're to love the Lord, our God. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. We glorify God. Remember what Paul has already told us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace. We exist. To love him. We exist to glorify God. And if you're not content with Ephesians chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 14. Flip in your Bible to chapter 3 verse 6. Look what it says. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body. Partakers of his promise in Christ. Through the gospel. Look at um, verse 10. To the intent that, in chapter 3, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. We exist to glorify God and so that the, the world will watch. We're to display God's grace. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards towards. Uh, in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we love him. We display God's grace. We exist to evangelize the world, it says in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Also in Mark 16, 15. So when people say, well, what's the church supposed to do? Love God? Yes. Glorify God? Yes. Display God's grace? Yes. Evangelize the world? Yes. Anything else? Yes. 
We baptize believers, Matthew 28, 19. We instruct the believers, Matthew 28, 19 and Philippians 4, 8. We encourage and edify the saints, 1 Corinthians 4, 16. Later, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. What else could we add to our list? We discipline believers, Matthew 18. We provide fellowship for believers. We care for our own in time of need, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. We provoke Israel to jealousy, Romans 11, 11. We prepare rulers for the millennial kingdom. And you go, who, which rulers? And what are you talking about? Romans 8, 17, 2 Timothy 2, 12. According to the Bible, it's my job to prepare you to rule with Christ in eternity. God has an assignment for you in the future. My job is to prepare you for that assignment. My pastor Chuck used to say, I'm going to ask for Hawaii. I know that maybe I won't get it, but want to rule Hawaii? I don't blame him. And if anyone deserved Hawaii, it would be him. But God has saved you. And he's preparing you. Not just, just to go to heaven and play a harp and live happily ever after. You're going to have a job to do. We act as a restraint against evil. We provide light to a dark world. We resist evil. We promote what is good. Now I want you to note something. In all that the church is to do. Love God, glorify God, display God's grace, evangelize the world, baptize believers, instruct believers, encourage and edify believers. You'll note that our job isn't primarily to cater to the unbeliever. Now don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not saying be rude or weird or dismissive towards your unbelieving family and friends. Your duty is to live in harmony but your witness is for the Lord. The Jewish temple in Jerusalem and the Gentile temple of Artemis in Ephesus were both going to be destroyed. Jesus would build his own temple. He's going to take lifeless stones, make them living stones, and then bind them together. So Paul's argument is that he's taken you, who once were dead in trespasses and sins. He's given you life in Christ, and then he's joined you and fitted you together so that you would experience unity. In verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now think about this. Because Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. How far can the temple expand? In Jesus, can we ever run out of room? Is it possible that God in heaven will go, time out, stop. A billion people have been saved. We don't have any more room left for anybody else. That's not going to happen. God has constructed the temple, the holy temple, and fitted you together for a dwelling place. Look what it says in verse 22. For a dwelling place of God in the spirit. The temple in Jerusalem destined for destruction. The temple in Ephesus destined for destruction. Paul's argument is you become the new temple. And God lives in you. Think this through. 
We're a new nation in verse 19. We're God's family in verse 19. We're God's building in verse 20. We're a growing and vital organism in verse 21. We're a worldwide temple, the universal church in verse 21. Growing north and south and east and west, incorporating anyone and everyone who will come to Christ. By the way, when I was doing this study, I was reminded that there are two Greek words translated temple. The first is naos, N-A-O-S. It's a reference in the Greek language to that precinct that was the holy place, the sacred place, or the holy of holies. It would have been used to describe the holy of holies in the Jewish temple, but even among the pagans, there was a place where only the priests or the priestesses, even in the pagan temples, that was the only place where they could go. The second word is hieron, H-I-E-R-O-N is the anglicized version. This is a word that would describe the temple proper, the buildings that surrounded the temple, the structure and the porticos. So the word temple mentioned here is naos. In the, in the Jewish culture, it was the temple restricted to the Levitical priests. In other words, the temple mentioned here isn't the place where anyone and everyone could come. It was the place where only the priests could come. Jesus drove the money changers from the Huron. But it was the Levitical priest who occupied the naos. The church has become that which it could never enter in Christ's earthly ministry. In Christ's earthly ministry, you could never, ever go to this holy place. Paul is saying to the Gentiles in Ephesus, you are that holy place. You're the sacred place place where God dwells. The church is the holy habitation of God. God dwells in the believer and therefore in the church we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and God. We are purchased by his blood. Remember in the opening chapter, we're one new man in chapter 2 verse 15. We're the bride of Christ. We're the people of God. We are the elect the elect. So Paul is going to argue both in the book of Romans and later in the book of Ephesians that once the holy habitation of God is complete, once the entire structure is fit together, that's when Jesus comes. Are you the one holding out on us? Are you the one making it difficult for us to leave this place and finally enter into eternity? Now, this is interesting. Paul's audience, who are they? Ephesian Gentiles. 
Paul argues we're being built together. Israel is the physical seed of Abraham. We're the spiritual seed of Abraham. Israel was born at the base of Mount Sinai in the giving of the law. The church was born at Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. For the Jews, they had a temple made of stone that was ornamented with precious things. For the Christian, for those who are part of this one new man, this holy habitation, you are the stones not made by human hands. You are the treasures in Christ that make up the holy temple. So why then is it so difficult for Christians to act like one nation or one family or one temple? John White in his classic book, The Fight, writes, quote, Considering all the divisions that have plagued Christendom for 2,000 years, it's amazing that God has continued to use the church to extend his kingdom. But whether you like it or not, you exist to love the Lord, to glorify the Lord, to minister to one another, to encourage one another, and edify one another. William Barclay offers this interesting illustration. He writes, In France, some soldiers with their sergeant brought the dead body of a comrade to a French cemetery to have him buried. This is during World War II. The priest told them gently that he was bound to ask if their comrade had been baptized an adherent of the Roman Catholic Church. They said that they didn't know. The priest said that he was very sorry, but in that case, he couldn't permit burial in the churchyard. And so the soldiers took their dead comrade and sadly buried him just outside of the fence. The next day, they came back to make sure that all was right with the grave. But to their astonishment, they couldn't find the place where they buried their friend. They couldn't find the place of the freshly dug soil. Search as they might, they couldn't find it. And they were about to leave in total shock and bewilderment when they were met by the priest. He told them that his heart was so troubled that night for his refusal to allow their friend to be buried in the cemetery that in the middle of the night, the priest got up and he moved the fence. Sometimes you're going to have to do exactly that. Because you believe that certain things can't be a certain way. We're the church. We're the church. Our purpose is not to rule the world. Or to serve the world. Or to fight the world. Or to imitate the world. We are in the world, but we're not of it. Our mission is to love the Lord, glorify the Lord, display God's grace, evangelize the world, baptize believers, instruct them, encourage them, edify them, 
And by the way, there are three, and discipline them. There are three kinds of discipline in the New Testament. There's self-discipline, which is talked about in 1 Corinthians 11.31 and 2 Corinthians 7.1. There's sovereign discipline, which is talked about in John 15, verse 2, and Acts 5.5, where God corrects. And then there's church discipline that's talked about in Matthew 18.17. But remember, the whole point of discipline is to correct behavior so that we can unite together in our common task. John MacArthur wisely points out the basis of Christian fellowship. He talks about the person of Christ. That's the basis of our fellowship in John 1.3. The basis of our Christian fellowship is sharing. We share with one another, but there's dangers also in being a Christian and a part of the church. We can lose Christian fellowship by sinning against one another, by taking advantage of one another. It doesn't unite, it divides. And of course, we care for one another in times of need. And so the basis of Christian fellowship the person of Jesus, we share. But he also talks about the responsibilities of fellowship. The responsibilities of fellowship include, number one, we confess our faults, James 5.16. Number two, we rebuke sin in each other, Ephesians 5.11. So imagine you're living in a world where that's off limits. Well, guess what? Then you can't experience forgiveness or reconciliation. So we confess our faults, we rebuke sin, we forgive one another in 2 Corinthians 2.6. We bear one another's burdens in Galatians 6.1. We prefer the weaker brother in Romans 14.13 and in chapter 15 verse 1. We comfort and exhort each other, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. We pray for one another, Romans 14.19. We edify one another, Romans 14.19. We admonish one another, Romans 15.14. You see, the early church was a believing church and an obedient church and a steadfast church and a praying church and a worshiping church and a joyful church and a praising church, an effective church and a growing church. Someone said that sound doctrine does not require that we be sound asleep as a church. I want to teach you the right things. But it's also important that we live our lives the right way. Just some quick don'ts before we stop. Don't visit our church. Worship when you're here. I mean, I understand that we have visitors. But the church actually isn't a place that you visit. It's a place where you worship. Don't visit worship. Don't hurry away. Speak and be spoken to. Don't dodge the preacher. Be friendly. Don't dodge the agape boxes. Be generous. Don't always sit in the back. No offense to you who are sitting in the back. But, in, but every once in a while, just every once in a while, just every once in a while, move forward. Don't stare blankly at the screen while others sing. 
Join in. I can't sing. Then mouth the words. Can you read? Just read the words and read them out loud. And don't wait for an introduction. Introduce yourself. And don't stay away from the church because you have company. Bring your company with you. Don't focus on the church's imperfections. Because I have bad news for you. You would probably feel lonely in a perfect church. Enter expectantly. Breathe prayerfully. Worship reverently. Relax restfully. Greet others cordially. Leave thoughtfully. And then come back soon. But I'll have a whole lot more to say about the church next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to be the kind of church where you're loved and glorified. Lord, we want to be the kind of church where the saints are edified. Lord, we want to be the kind of church where outsiders feel like now they get to be a part of the inside. Lord, we sometimes don't fully appreciate what it means that we are saved. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we pray. We pray that with all the grace that you've given to us and all the strength that's been imparted to us, that with thanksgiving, we could be grateful for what Jesus has done for us. And then, Lord, we pray that you would remind us of just what it means to pray for one another and encourage one another. That, Lord, we can literally, not just metaphorically, make life easier for one another instead of harder for one another. And so, Lord, again, I pray for us as a church that we would begin to experience all that you've asked for. That we are a holy habitation. And that, Lord, we are a body joined and fitted together, fulfilling the plan and the purpose that you've called us to. In Jesus' name. And the saints said...